Section 36 of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. The Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12, Section 36, Humbugs and Humbuggery part four of four people frequently say to me quote, brian your attacks are too harsh you should use more persuasion and less pison perhaps so but i have not yet mastered the esoteric of choking a bad dog to death with good butter persuasion is well enough if you're accordant or in the hands of the vigilantes, but turning that loose on the average fraud were too much like a tenderfoot trying to move string of freight steers with moral suasion. He takes up his whip, gently snaps it as though he feared it were loaded, and talks to his cattle like a Boston philanthropist to poor relation. The steers look round at him wonder in a vague way if he's worth eating and stand at ease an old freighter who's been over the divide and got his profanity down to a fine art grabs that goad cracks it like a rifled cannon reaching for a raw recruit and spells a string of cuss words calculated to precipitate the final conflagration you expect to see him struck dead but those steers don't they're firmly persuaded that he's going to outlive them if they don't get down in Paul Gravel, and they get a Nancy Hanks hustle on them. Never attempt to move an ox team with moral suasion, or to drown the cohorts of the devil in the milk of human kindness. It won't work. Oh, it's possible that you may disagree with me on some minor points of doctrine. That's your blessed privilege, and I wouldn't deprive you of it if I had the power. A pompous old fellow once called at the office of my religious monthly to inform me that I was radically wrong on every possible public question. He seemed to think that I had committed an unpardonable crime in daring to differ from him. I asked him to be seated and whistled for the devil, the printer's devil, the only kind we keep in the office of the iconoclast. I told him to procure for me a six-shooter a sledgehammer and a boat my visitor became greatly alarmed what are you going to do do i replied i'm going to shoot the printers lash the press and throw the type into the river what the name of the great sanhedrin is the use of me printing a paper if i can't please you mr pomposity subsided somewhat and I proceeded to talk United States to him. You say I'm wrong? Perhaps I am. But how in Halifax? I think I said Halifax. Anyhow, we'll let it go at that. How in Halifax did you find out? Who installed you as infallible Pope in the realm of intellect and declared it rank folly to run counter to the ideas that roost in your nice fat head? He was one of those egotistical mental microbes or intellectual animalculi 
who imagine that a man must be in the wrong if he disagrees with him. And the woods are so full of that class of fellows that the fool-killer has become discouraged and jumped his job. Those who chance to think alike get together and form a political party, a society or a sect, and take it for granted that they've got all the wisdom of the world grabbed, that beyond their little road island of intellect are only gibbering idiots and plotting knaves. When a man fears to subject his faith to the crucible of controversy, when he declines to submit his ideas to the ballistae and battering rams of cold logic, you can safely set it down that he's either a hopeless cabbage head or a hypercritical humbug, that he's a fool or a fraud, is full of buncombe or bile. It is difference of opinion that keeps the world from going to the dogs, independence of thought, doubt of accepted dogmas, the spirit of inquiry, the desire to know, is the mighty lever that has lifted man so far above the brute level that he has begun to claim kinship with the Creator. Yet we say to our brother, Thou fool, because he takes issues with us on the tariff for the proper time in the moon to plant post holes, even insist on sending people to perdition who cannot see the plan of salvation through our little sectarian telescope. Men of a mind flock together just like so many gabbling geese or other foolish fowl of a feather, each group waddling in the wake of some fat-headed old gander. Squawking when he squawks, and fluttering when he flies, because I decline to get in among the goslings and be piloted about the intellectual goose-pond, I'm told that I have no policy. Well, I hope I haven't. If I thought I had, I'd take something for it, don't you know? When I cannot live among my fellows without surrendering my independence, forswearing freedom of speech and liberty of thought, without having to play the canting hypocrite or go hungry, to fawn like a flea-bitten feist to win public favor, I'll make me a suit of leather, take to the woods and chop bee-trees. I'd rather my babies were born in a canebrake and reared on bark and wild berries with the blood of independence burning in their veins then spawned in a palace and brought up bootlicks and policy players i am sometimes inclined to believe that life itself is a humbug that the man who makes the best of it is the one who escaped being born we know not whence we came or what for whether we go or what we'll do when we get there True it is that life is not altogether labor and lees, there's some skittles and beer. But the most of us get more shadow than sunshine, more color amorbus than cream. Man born of woman is a few days and full of politics. The moment he hits the globe he starts for the grave, and his only visible reward for the long days of labor and nights of pain is an epitaph he can't read, and a tombstone he don't want. In the first of the seven ages of man he's licked, in the last he's neglected, and in all the others he's a fair mark for the shafts of falsehood. If he don't marry his first love, he's forever miserable, and he does, he wishes he were dead. 
by the time he has learned wisdom he leaves the world is hustled into a hell of fire or an orthodox heaven and for forty years i've been trying to figure out which of these appalling evils to avoid in one place the climate is hot and unhealthy in the other the inhabitants never entertain an original idea believed everything they were told think of having to live through all eternity with a strictly orthodox people who regard freedom of thought as foul blasphemy millions of immaculate bricks cast in the same mould no wonder there's neither marrying nor giving in marriage in heaven just imagine a couple of lovesick loons having nothing to do but spoon from everlasting to everlasting to talk tutti-frutti through all eternity never a break or breathing spell in the lingering sweetness long drawn out amelia rives chandler or ella wheeler wilcox couldn't stand it nor could i by the time i had lived ten thousand years with a female who could fly and had nothing in god's world to do but watch me i'd either raise a revolution or send in my resignation it is said that satan had an affair d'amour while he was plain seraph if the object of his affections were feathers i don't much wonder that he went over the garden wall i suspect that the orthodox heaven and hell of which we hear so much are humbugs i should know something of these interesting ultimates be qualified to speak ex cathedra for a doctor of divinity recently denounced me as a child of the devil in that case you behold in me a prince imperial heir apparent to the throne of pluto the potential master of more than a moiety of mankind ah, but don't tell anybody that i've got a title that i belong to the oldest nobility or all the golderbilts will be trying to buy me i promise you that when i come into my kingdom i'll devise a worse punishment than physical pain a soul is an immaterial thing you cannot flay it with aspic fangs nor kerosene it and set it on fire a material hell for immaterial mind were too ridiculous for a progressive devil but it is not necessary to be a son of satan to build a hell in which demons dance and sulphur fumes asphyxiate the soul you may transform your own home into a valley of hinnom a veritable gehenna or you may make of the humblest cot a heaven illumined by love and gilded with god's own glory a beulah land where flowers forever bloom where perfumed censers swing and music throbs and thrills sweeter far than the orphean lyre or song of israfel the orthodox heaven is a pageant of barbaric splendor of gaudy tinsel and flaming gold to dazzle the eyes of infants it is a land of lotus eaters where ambition's star is blotted from the firmament and the wild ecstasy of passion beats no longer in the blood an oriental heaven a paradise for tired people eternal dolce for niente for niggers and yellow dogs no celt or saxon with aspiring mind with swelling muscles and heart that flames with the fierce joy of strong endeavor that thrills with the sweetness of sacrifice for others sake 
that swells with the mad glory of triumph in the forum or the field could have conceived such a futile farce give me a land whose skies are lead and soil is sand yet everlasting life with those i love give me a lodge in some vast wilderness hollowed by children's laughter give me a cave in the mountain crag to house those dearest to my heart give me a tent on the far frontier where by the lambent light of their mother's eyes i may watch my children grow in grace and the truth of god and i'll build a heaven grander nobler sweeter than was ever dreamed of by the gross materialists of bygone days life is a humbug only because we make it so we are frauds because we are fools this is a beautiful a glorious world fit habitation for sons of the most high god it is a fruitful mother at whose fair breast all her children may be filled there should be never a humbug nor a hypocrite never a millionaire nor a mendicant on the great round globe labor should be but healthful exercise to develop the physical man to furnish forth a fitting casket for the godlike mind appropriate setting for the immortal soul the curse of life arises from a misconception of its significance we delve into the mine for paltry gems explore old oceans deep for pearls we toil and strive for gold until the hands are worn and the heart is cold we attire ourselves in tyrian purples and silks of end and stretch forth in our gilded frippery on the narrow bridge of time between two eternities we despoil the thin purse of the poor to erect brazen altars and priceless fanes when the whole earth's a sacred shrine the universe a temple through which rings the voice of god and rolls the eternal melody of the spheres perhaps it is unnecessary to state that i am not posing as a saint i may eventually become an angel of some sort but i'll wear no wings we are accustomed to think of seraphs flying from heaven to earth flitting from star to star irrespective of the fact that feathers are useless where there is no atmosphere an angel working his wings to propel himself through a vacuum were as ridiculous as a disembodied spirit riding a bike down a rainbow i do not expect to reform all humbugs to banish all fakes to exterminate all folly if the world should get too good i might have to hunt some other home i can understand every crime in the calendar but the crime of greed every lust of the flesh but for the lust of gain every sin that ever damned a soul but the sin of selfishness by all the sacred bugs and beasts of ancient egypt i'd rather be a witch's cat or even a politician and howl in sympathy with my tribe i'd rather be a tramp and divide my handouts with one more hungry i'd rather be a mangy yellow dog without a master and keep the company of my kind than to be a multimillionaire with the blood of a snake the heart of a beast and carry my soul like pedro garcia in my purse 
When I think of the 3,000 children in the single city of Chicago without rags to shield their nakedness from the keen north wind, of the 10,000 innocents such as Christ blessed, who died in New York every year of the world for lack of food, of the millions in every country whose cries go up night and day to God's great throne, not for salvation, but for soup, not for the robe of righteousness, but for a second-hand pair of pants, and then contemplate those beside whose hoarded wealth of the riches of Lydia's ancient kings were but a beggar's patrimony, praying to him who reversed the law of nature to feed the poor. I long for the mystic power to coin sentences that sear like sulphur flames, come hot from hell, and weaves of words, a whip of scorpions to lash the rascals naked through the world. We humbug our parents, the public, and then, as far as possible, our wives, though the latter are seldom so blind as they seem. The wife who cannot tell when her lord and master is lying, whether he's been sitting up with a sick friend or nursing a Robert Tail flush, well, she must be the newest kind of new woman with a brain built for bloomers and bike. The new woman is, she is all right, just the old woman in disguise, a paradox and a coat of paint. Whenever I tackle this subject, I'm reminded of a broth of a boy who in days agone drove the team afield on my father's farm. One rare June day when the sun was slowly sinking in the west, as the novelists say, and I believe that's where old Saul usually sinks, he got mixed up with a bevy of industrious bumblebees who were no respecters of person. What sting an honest delver as quickly as they'd put the gaffles to a scorbutic duke? In about two minutes, Mike came over the hill, a whooping like a segment of the Southern Confederacy reaching for a nigger regiment his head the size and shape of a red peck measure that had been kicked by a roan mule. "'Sure now, they didn't do a thing to me,' he said. "'An old bumblebug came a-buzzin' and a-buzzin', a-lookin' for all the world like an orangeman with wings, so I up and hit him a biff. Then all the rest of the haven took up his fight, and I came home.' Hit one humbug, and every fraud and fake in Christendom is ready for the fray. They attempt to crush their critic with calumny and defeat him with falsehood. When you hear a fellow railing at the iconoclast, just look through its stock of caps, and you'll find one that will fit the knot at the end of his neck. Truth, and only truth, is eternal. It was not born, and it cannot die. It may be obscured by the clouds of falsehood, or buried in the debris of brutish ignorance, but it can never be destroyed. It exists in every atom, lives in every flower, and flames in every star. When the heavens and the earth shall pass away, and the universe return to cosmic dust, divine truth will stand unscathed among the crash of matter and the wreck of worlds. Falsehood is an amorphous monster, conceived in the brain of knaves, and brought forth by the breath of fools. 
It's a mortal pestilence, a miasmic vapor that passes like a blast from hell over the face of the world and is gone forever. It may leave death in its wake and disaster dire. It may place on the brow of purity the brand of the courtesan and cover the hero with the stigma of the coward. It may wreck hopes and ruin homes and cause blood to flow and hearts to break. It may pollute the altar and disgrace the throne corrupt the courts and curse the land but the lie cannot live for ever and when it's dead and damned there's none so poor as to do it reverence the following remarks apropos local politics were included in mr brand's lecture on humbugs as delivered at the dallas texas opera house october seventeenth eighteen ninety five a discourse on political humbugs were incomplete without some reference to the young man whom texas in a moment of mental aberration raised to the chief magistracy i learned from a sermon recently inflicted on the long-suffering inhabitants of this city that son charles is our quote, heroic young christian governor close quote. how he must have changed during the last few months Shakespeare was probably viewing the Texas politician with prophetic eye when he declared that in the great drama of life a man plays many parts. Culberson is the only one, however, who has yet succeeded in playing them all at one and the same time. A man who can run with the hare politically while holding with the hounds personally is almost too versatile to be virtuous. Quote, our heroic young Christian governor, close quote. That preacher evidently doesn't know Charles, or if he does, his idea of Christianity is not so altitudinous that he can stand on its apex and keep the flies off the man on the moon. Culberson is a politician who enjoyed excellent health before he entered the public service. He is all things to all men and nothing to nobody. He's so slippery that he couldn't stand on the partisan platform to which he owes his political elevation. In the last gubernatorial election, pretty much every man who voted for Culberson felt that he had a lead-pipe cinch on a fat office, and the remainder was certain he would work four and twenty hours a day to put in effect their pet reforms. They are wiser now. In 1890, Charlie sailed into the attorney generalship on the ample coattails of one J. S. Hogg, and in less than thirty days he was conspiring to retire his chief after one term and to slip into his official shoes. The trouble appears to be that the youngster was pulled before he was ripe, before his political integrity had time to harden, or his crop of wild oats was well in the ground. Now, I want it distinctly understood that I am not the apologist of pugilism. I am the apostle of the white-winged goddess of peace. I always carry a cruise of oil in my hip pocket to cast upon the troubled waters. I have a pacific effect on all with whom I come in contact. Children quit crying when they see me coming. Women speak well of their neighbors. Men respect each other's political opinions. 
preachers engage in silent prayer and the lion and the lamb lie down together and that's no lie but as between pugilism and hypocrisy i prefer the former i would rather see men pound each other for a fat purse than play the canting pharisee to promote their political fortunes let us look to the record of our heroic young christian governor during the four years he officiated as attorney general he made no determined effort to enforce the law then in effect prohibiting pugilism prize fights were pulled off at galveston san antonio el paso and other texas points after having been duly advertised in the daily press he was elevated to the chief magistracy of the state and the slugging matches continued mills between brawny but unskilled boxers grew relied upon brute strength and pounded each other to a pumice to make a hoodlum holiday some of these meetings were especially brutal as matches between amateur athletes are likely to be but our heroic young christian governor saw no occasion to get his ebenezer up he simply sawed wood didn't care a continental whether there was a law prohibiting bruising bouts or not and the ministerial associations were too busy taking up collections to send bibles and blankets salvation and missionary soup to the pagans of the antipodes to pay much attention to these small fry pugs they let our blessed texas civilization take care of itself while they agonized over a job lot of lazy negroes whose souls ain't worth a sou marquee in blocks of five who wouldn't walk into heaven if the gates were wide open but once inside would steal the eternal throne if it wasn't spiked down no epworth leaguers or christian endeavourers whereas or resoluted or perorated until the tongues were worn to a frazzle trying to preserve the honour of our great and glorious state by suppressing feather pillow pugilism why i don't know do you of course some carping critics declare it was because the world was not watching these brutal slugging matches between youths to pugilistic fortune and fame unknown that it was because the professionally pious had no opportunity to make a grand stand to play and get their names in print no chance to pose in the eye of the universe as the conservators of our fin de siècle civilization but then these doubting thomases are ever ready to make a mock of the righteous and put cockleburs in the back hair of the godly i dislike to criticize the cloth i am prone to believe that the preachers always do the best they know how still i must confess that i am unable to muster up much admiration for the brass band variety of religion or the tutti-frutti trademark of respectability had the belief not been bred into my bones that there is a god in israel these little two-by-four preachers with their great moral hippodrome their purblind blinking at mountains and much ado about molehills would drive me to infidelity by their egregious folly their fiery denunciation of all men who dare disagree with them their attempt to make the state subservient to the church 
to establish an imperium in imperio by their mischievous meddling in matters that in no wise concern them they are bringing the beautiful religion of christ into contempt and are doing more to foster doubt than did all the humes and voltaires and pains that ever wielded pen now don't get the idea that i am antagonistic to the preachers far from it i am something of a minister myself and we who have been called to labor in the lord's vineyard at so much per annum must stand together i admire the ministers in a general way and whom the lord loveth he chasteneth i feel that it is my duty to pull them tenderly but firmly back by the little alpaca coat-tails whenever they have made mistakes to approve them in all gentleness when i find them fanning themselves with their ears for the amusement of the mob but to return to our heroic young christian governor when it was first proposed to bring the great fisty carnival and a million dollars to dallas governor culberson had nothing to say it was popularly supposed that he understood the law and would respect it the impression got abroad that he felt rather friendly to the enterprise because it would put five hundred scudi in the depleted coffers of the public and turn a great deal of ready money loose within the confines of texas he may not have been directly responsible for this popular idea but he certainly did nothing to discourage it arrangements were perfected important contracts entered into a vast amount of money invested that would prove a complete loss if the enterprise collapsed then culberson began to complain he suddenly discovered that pugilism was a brutal sport which should be suppressed his conversion was as instantaneous as that of Saul of Tarsus. It were an insult to the intelligence of a hopeless idiot to say he did not know the Corbett Fitzsimmons affair would prove far less brutal than a hundred fistic encounters which he, as Attorney General and Governor, had tacitly encouraged. But his jewel of consistency had evidently gone to join his diamond stud. Colonel Dan Stewart didn't appear inclined to do anything to tease the young man's agony and it rapidly went from bad to worse the hurt decision was rendered and the moral volcano of our heroic young christian governor began to erupt in earnest he declared that he would override the court of criminal appeals if men enough can be found in texas to do it he gave excellent imitation of an anarchist who is hungering for canned gore after this blood to horses bridles bluff he grew quiescent waited micawber like for something to turn up and still dan stuart didn't say a word then our heroic young christian governor broke out in a new place the legislature was convened in extraordinary session to prevent a brace of pugilists smashing the immortal ichor out of modern civilization it was a great moral aggregation almost equal to artemus ward's waxworks i am convinced of this for it employed two doctors of divinity at public cost of course to pray over it a minute each morning for five dollars per diem each 
everyone expected the president of the florida athletic club to go to austin and make an earnest free silver speech even though lawmakers were looking for him but he didn't go and the result was what might have been expected the law builders with the worst private records had the most to say about public morality men whose i o u s are not good at any game of penny ante whose faces are familiar to the inmates of every disreputable dive between the sabine and the rio bravo who go to their legislative duties from the gambling room and with six shooters in the bust of the breeches grew tearful over the prospective disgrace of texas by a manly boxing bout hell hath no fury like a legislative humbug scorned while he's holding his hand behind him but the wrath of our heroic young christian governor did not abate with the enactment of a law forbidding price fights such a law as he had flagrantly failed to enforce the promoters of what the court of criminal appeals declared a lawful enterprise were arrested and dragged before the grand jury of travis county which appears to have taken the entire earth under its protectorate failing an opportunity to prosecute them for an offence against the laws of the land the powers of austin proceeded to prosecute them on the hypothesis that they were conspiring to wreck the universe and what was their offence they had conspired to pay five hundred dollars into the public treasury and bring a million more to dallas they had conspired to bring several thousand respectable businessmen to texas from all parts of the union and furnished employment at good wages for hundreds of hungry men while i do not much admire pugilism as a profession i must say that the promoters of the enterprise conducted themselves much better than did our heroic young christian governor and those alleged saints who proposed to shoulder their little shotguns and help him override the courts to butcher their brethren in cold blood to prevent an encounter between brawny athletes armed with pillows to sustain modern civilization by transforming the metropolis of texas into a charnel house to prevent by brutal homicide in the name of christ their neighbors exercising those liberties accorded them by the laws of the land curious this modern civilization of which we hear so much during the palmy days of roman grandeur and grecian glory their athletes fought with terrible cestas to win a crown of oak or laurel but then rome never produced a reverend seashells nor greece a senator bowser the imperial city did manage to breed a brutus and a cato but never proved equal to a culberson think of a texas legislature composed chiefly of illiterate jabberwocks who string out the sessions interminably for the sake of the two dollars a day imagine these fellows each with a large pendulous ear to the earth listening for the approach of some pegasus to carry him to congress teaching the aesthetics of civilization to the divine philosophers of greece and the godlike senators of rome think of perry j lewis pulling the conscript fathers over the coals of senator bowser pointing out civic duties to socrates of attorney-general crane 
giving Julius Caesar a piece of his mind, of Charlie Culberson turning up his little two-for-a-nickel nose at the Olympian Games. But perhaps that is not the game our heroic young Christian governor is most addicted to. Prize-fighting, even with pillows for points, is bad enough, no doubt. But there are worse things. Making the Texas people pay for an abortive little second-term gubernatorial boom is one of them. And canting hypocrisy by sensation-seeking preachers is another. Can the church and state find no grander work than camping on the trail of a couple of pugilists? Are Gentleman Jim and Kangaroo Bob the upper and nether millstones between which humanity is being ground? Are these the only obstacles to the inauguration of the Golden Age, that era of peace on earth and goodwill to men? The world is honeycombed with crime. Brother Seashull says there are eight hundred fallen women in this city alone, and I presume he knows. But if there be half so many, what a terrible story of human degradation, more appalling even than soft-glove pugilism. Our streets swarm with able-bodied beggars, young men, most of them, whom want may drive into wickedness. Human life is cheap. Men are slain in this alleged Christian land for less silver than led Judas to betray Christ. Young girls are sold to shame, and from squalid attics come the cry of starving babies. The Goths and Visigoths are once more gathering, imperiling civilization itself, and belief in God is fading slowly but surely from the earth. Want and wretchedness skulk in the shadows of our temples. Ignorance and crime stalk abroad at high noon. The legions of Lucifer are overrunning the land, transforming God's beautiful world into a veritable Gehenna. The field of blood is filling. The prisons and poorhouses are overflowing, crowded with wretched creatures who dare dream of fame and fortune. The great sea of life is thick-strewn with wrecks, millions more drifting helpless and hopeless upon the rocks. From out the darkness there come cries for aid, men pleading for employment, women shrieking in agony of soul, little children wailing with hunger and cold. And the winds wax ever stronger, the waves run higher and higher, the wreck and wraith grow ever more pitiful more appalling. And church and state pause in this made vortex of chaos to prate of the ills of pugilism, to legislate and perorate anent bloodless boxing bouts, to prosecute a brace of harmless pugs. The people ask bread of the church, and it gives them a stone. They ask of the state protection of their lives and liberties, and it gives them a special session of the legislature shoots doodle-bugs with a gatling-gun, and sends them the bill. But to recur for a moment to the fistic carnival, have any of you been able to determine how the Dallas News stood in regard to that great enterprise? Sometimes, when I want to go on an intellectual debauch, I read the news, or Ayers' almanac. 
it appears to entertain but two opinions, mainly that Uncle Sam should black the boots of John Bull, and that Grover Cleveland carries the brains of the world in his begum. This brace of abortive ideas constitutes its confession of faith, the only things of which it feels absolutely certain. When it tackles anything else, it wobbles in and it wobbles out, like an unhappy married man trying to find his way home at five o'clock in the morning. A great diplomat once declared that language was made to conceal thought, but the Dallas News employs it to disguise an intellectual vacuum. It can use more language to say less than any other publication on earth. In this particular, it is like Napoleon. It stands wrapped in the solitude of its own originality. The eating of thirty quail in thirty days was once a popular test of human endurance. But I can propose a more crucial one, one that will attract more people to Dallas than would even the Corbett Fitzsimmons fight. Let the people of the city offer a fat purse for the man who can read the editorial page of the Dallas News thirty days in succession without degenerating into a driveling idiot. It is a mental impossibility, of course. But perhaps my good friend Dory can be persuaded to attempt it, to hoist himself with his own petard. No man born of woman will ever accomplish it. Massillon would become a mental bankrupt within the month, and Socrates have to be tapped for the simples before reaching the halfway house. The news is troubled with a chronic case of Anglomania. Whenever Columbia has a controversy of any kind with Britannia, the news hastens to ally itself with the Britisher. But in matters concerning the welfare of the city of Dallas, it has little to say. It did manifest a slight inclination to take up for the fistic enterprise, fearfully slid one foot to terra firma. But when the success of the carnival became doubtful, the news hastened to resume its time-honored position astride the fence, and it has sung there ever since, like a foul dish-rag across a wire clothesline. It's the greatest journalistic fraud on the face of the earth. It doesn't dare to risk the opinion that water is wet, but probably it isn't sure of it. It is just as well, however, for if it did know, it couldn't leak the information in less than a column. The editorial page of the Dallas News reminds me of the desert of Sahara after a simoon. It is such an awful waste of space. If I had a five-year-old boy who couldn't say more in fifteen minutes than the Dallas News has said in the last dozen years, I'd refuse to father him. One of the greatest frauds of modern times is the policy-plain newspaper. The Archimedean lever, as applied to daily journalism, is a fake of the first magnitude. There is not a morning newspaper in Texas possessing sufficient political influence to elect a poundmaster. In fact, their support will damn any politician eternally, for the people wisely conclude that what the alleged great dailies support is a pretty good thing for them to oppose. Hogg would not have reached the governorship 
but for the blatant opposition of the morning press. His friendship for George Clark was the upas shadow in which he perished politically. There hasn't been an important law enacted in Texas during the last ten years that it didn't oppose, and yet men actually imagine they cannot succeed in politics, business, or letters without the assistance of that great molder of public opinion. Let me tell you that every success in this country has witnessed during the past three decades was achieved despite the morning press. To paraphrase Owen Meredith, Let a man once show the press that he feels afraid of its bark, and will fly at his heels. Let him fearlessly face, twill leave him alone, but twill phone at his feet if he flings it a bone. End of section 36